Hello, 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 and welcome everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or any other time of the day whenever you're listening to the podcast. This is The Ethics of Research. If this is your first time here, my name is Aden, and I am a doctoral fellow at the Center for Ethics at University of Toronto. In this podcast, I discuss research ethics with my academic colleagues who research topics involving contentious issues and vulnerable populations. My guest today is Jessica Stallone, who is a fellow PhD student from the Department of Sociology right here at U of T. Her research expertise is in the areas of immigration, race, and gender, and her research examines Muslim cultural politics and anti-Muslim racism in Canada. She has two ongoing projects. The first project examines how Muslim women in Montreal build sisterhood in the Muslim Student Association during the hyper-political moment of the Quebec Charter of Values debate. And the second project uses computational methods and qualitative discourse analysis to uncover the racial logics that Facebook users employ to explain their disdain for Muslim women's dress. Both projects are within the broader umbrella of anti-Muslim racism in Canada. She is a Harney Fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and a teaching assistant at the University of Toronto. Her research is funded by the Fonse Quebec Society and Culture. And here is our discussion. I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much for taking your time, Jessica. I know you're very busy. You just finished your comprehensive exam. Did you pass? So congratulations. And I am Thank so excited you. to have you on my podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be having this conversation with you. Excellent. Okay, so I'll start with the very first question. So for our listeners who um, don't know you, tell us what is the topic of your PhD dissertation and how did you come about it? Yes, of course. So for my PhD dissertation, I'll be investigating how white non-Muslim people in Quebec interpret and understand Quebec state legislation that limits Muslim minority cultural religious practices. So the Quebec state has had this very tumultuous relationship with religion and actively works to limit religious freedoms in the name of preserving, you know, the Quebec language, uh, the Quebec culture, the Quebec values of secularism. And most recently in 2019, the Quebec government passed Bill 21, which yeah. is legislation that uh, bans the wearing of what they called quote unquote, ostentatious religious symbols yeah. for public sector employees. So if you're a teacher or a nurse or a police officer or uh, a judge, you can't wear any sort of visible religious symbols. And so there's a lot of research out there about how this legislation impacts religious minorities, yeah. particularly women that wear the hijab. Yes. But we don't really know how dominant groups in society who are white and non-Muslim mm -hmm. understand these laws yeah. and the sort of logics or justifications, rationales that they use to support this or not. Yeah. So that's the sort, these are some of the questions that I'll be asking. And I'm gonna be doing um, a comparison of two different small towns mm -hmm. in Quebec uh, and one town has received a lot of demographic change in the last 10 years and supposedly welcomes diversity. Mm -hmm. And the other town um, emphasizes preserving the French language, preserving yeah. Quebec culture, and so forth. So I'm going to be also asking, you know, how do white non-Muslim people make sense of these demographic changes mm -hmm. and increasing Muslim populations in their neighborhood? Yeah. 
And the hope is that this research will contribute to our understanding about the racial logics and the racial underpinnings of Islamophobia. Yeah. So we know that it exists, but we don't know what the underlying logics that drive it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the sort of gist of what I hope this project will accomplish. Super interesting. And what I really like is that you you specify that you're focused on Quebec, because sometimes, you know, if we think of Canada in general, we think, OK, this is what's happening in Canada. This is the limit of Islamophobia or this is the limit of discrimination or things that are happening. But you are focused on Quebec, which sometimes have, uh, you know, some different polit social political context compared to the rest of the Canada. Before we talk more about your research, because you just mentioned uh, a little bit about your method that you will be comparing to small towns. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Generally, what kind of research methods do you prefer as a researcher? Are you more a quantitative researcher or qualitative researcher? And if you have a preference, why? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to give, uh, I guess, a very feminist answer to this. Yeah. Um, so I'll put that bias right there in the front. Yeah. Um, there is definitely, I guess, a special place in my heart for qualitative methods. I know mm -hmm. that as researchers, we're often taught to choose a method that fits the research question, but this is a very positive, positivist idea, right, that is apolitical and doesn't think about the nuances about the politics surrounding the production of knowledge, right? So in, in real life, I mean, methods are actually quite gendered, right? More men tend to do quantitative work, yeah. and this type of research is highly valued and has a lot of status attached to it, right? Exactly. And women tend to tend to do qualitative work, right? That involves talking, interviewing, involves socializing and so forth. And even if we go deeper down this rabbit hole, right? In qualitative methods, there's also um, a gender dimension, mm -hmm. right? That ethnography, um, male ethnographers can criticize interview data, right? For not capturing the whole truth, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is just a long winded way of saying that I do believe that method methodological choices are political. Mm -hmm. uh, they're rooted in different historical traditions, right? Yeah. They're embedded in power structures that relate to race, that relate to gender. And so um, not only do I investigate research questions that require qualitative methods, but I hope and I and I try to take a feminist as epistemology mm -hmm. um, to qualitative research, right? So yeah. one that takes into account that our emotions and our heart, right, also works in line to the types of questions that we come up with. And it acknowledges that people do research in which they're positionally located, mm -hmm. that, you know, we try to do research that is as is, is rigorous, but it also involves caring about the people that we're speaking to and, yeah. and so forth. So it's that's... Um, yeah, my take, I think. Excellent, because now that you mention it, so I never thought it in this gender way that you so aptly described, but in IR, in international relations, which is my field, it's the same thing. More, Most generals publish quantitative work or that's considered more research or good research and which is mostly done by male academics often. Uh, and then, you know, a more qualitative work is sometimes seen as, you know, maybe you're just doing a case study or, you know, it's not capturing um, uh, the, the information that we need or it is not generalizable. So what's the point of doing it if you're just focusing on one case or one issue or one area? So yeah, the way that you describe it, I hadn't thought of it, but I think it's very good. Uh, you know, it really, and for our students listening, yeah, I think uh, it's something for them to think about as well. Yeah, I don't know how many job talks I've attended where someone presents on qualitative research, and mm -hmm. then there's 
a quantitative scholar says yes, but that's not generalizable. I mean, <laughs> we freaking know this. Like, we don't need to stamp this on yes. everyone's forehead. I mean, you know, that's not only the point, right? And I have a good um, feminist mentor that responded to that comment saying that, yes, it's not generalizable to the population, but we can generalize to theory and Ooh, we can create yes. theory out of this. And mm -hmm. so I think that's one way in which, you know, we can make a significant contribution. Yeah. Excellent. I love that. I love that answer. Now I'm going to be mm -hmm. using it too when I'm in job. Exactly. Like somebody bring it up. <laughs> yes, we can generalize it to theory, even if we cannot generalize it to population. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to uh, shift gears a bit uh, towards your uh, MA research. So you, you did in-person interviews of Muslim women in Quebec as part of, as part of your master's research um, who are often doubly marginalized in our society. So I want to know more, what are some ethical guidelines that you had to follow as per your IRB and how difficult it was to get ethics approval for your research? Right. So um, I guess I'll provide a bit of context first. Mm -hmm. So I, I conducted interviews with a Muslim woman that wore the hijab and mm -hmm. that didn't mm -hmm. um, during the Quebec Charter of Values debate in mm -hmm. Quebec. So at this time, the Quebec government was proposing legislation to ban these religious symbols it, for public sector employees. Mm -hmm. So the hijab was deeply politicized uh, in this moment that I was doing the interviews. And I did the interviews during my undergrad, so I didn't have much training or much experience for that matter. Um, but I, I applied for IRB mm -hmm. and it was a pretty straightforward process where you need to write and illustrate the processes that you're gonna use in order to protect the people that you're interviewing. Mm -hmm. So there's standard procedures that you have to follow like confidentiality and conducting an interview that is most convenient location for the participant, mm -hmm. explaining that you know the participant can leave the interview at any time or not have to answer a specific question if they don't want to yeah making sure that recordings are kept with you know a secure password and destroyed mm -hmm. once the project is over yeah. so these are sort of the uh these are sort of the reasons that you have to give on the irb application in terms of how you're gonna do your best to protect the identity of the people that you're going to be speaking with Mm -hmm. And uh, once you um, started your uh, your actual research, um, were there any ethical dilemmas that came up that um, you know you didn't anticipate while you were working on your IRB and you know it got approved, but in the field it was different? And if if so, if some unexpected things came up, how did you navigate that? So, I mean, you know, <laughs> once you start qualitative research, you realize that ethics extends way beyond the IRB in terms yeah. of what they can possibly anticipate. Yes. Um, and so there was a moment of a lot of interpersonal reckoning once the project was over, right? I, I'm a white person. I come from an Italian immigrant background. My mm -hmm. grandparents are from Italy. Yeah. I'm not Muslim. Mm -hmm. I was um, born Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, you know, I was asking myself, I'm the, am I the right person to be doing this research that asks questions about the hijab mm -hmm. and what it means for the woman wearing them? So that was a lot of reflection that took place. And, and the answer that I came up with is, no, I'm not the right person for this. Okay. Um, I took this feminist methods course 
couple of years after I did this project. Yeah. And a professor told me, you know, that white people study people of color all the time. Mm -hmm. And that this is a trend within the discipline of sociology, you know, although I do think that's changing, but um, there is this trend to study the marginalized, the vulnerable, yeah. the less, less powerful. Yeah. And so my dissertation, I've taken that uh, comment to heart and I've tried to redirect my agenda for the dissertation. Mm -hmm. And I've also found in my experience of doing research that sometimes vulnerable populations are over-researched, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yes. And it makes me think of, well, what is our role as researchers, right? <laughs> like where we pick and prod research sub subjects. It's like at some point, you know, just let me be and, and so forth. So I think there is a responsibility to ask us what are the gains of certain research agendas and 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 so forth, and to really be reflexive about the research that we do. Exactly, um, I really agree with the part that you uh, talk. You know, oftentimes people who are vulnerable or marginalized in our society um, are over research. I found the similar thing in my research too. Like, you know, I study extremism, so I thought, okay, I'll study both religious-based extremism and right-wing extremism. And I just realized that, with, you know, with religious-based extremism, there's been such a focus on minority communities that they just do not mm -hmm. want to take part in research anymore. Even if it, you know, it has right. nothing to do with extremism and they want to uh, express their discontent or anything, they're just so tired right. to constantly be under this microscope. It's like, oh yeah, I want to study you, you know, as a, as a subject. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so then let's move on to your dissertation project, right? Because you mentioned that your experience with this earlier project um, and your experience in your, um, in that feminist methods codes made, make, made you to uh, take this shift. So in your most recent project now, you mentioned that you're examining the attitudes of mostly white majority groups in Canada towards Muslim minorities uh, while working in the online space. So how is it different than conducting face-to-face -face interviews that you did in your earlier project? So the first phase is I've, you know, as sort of exploratory research, I started to look at online comments on Facebook mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to see thoughts, you know, majority comments or dominant views towards uh, Muslim women's dress because yes. this, this has sort of garnered a lots of public attention within Canada and Quebec. Mm -hmm. um, but the um, dissertation, the second phase would be doing in-person interviews and ethnography and so forth. So that hasn't been done yet, but I have done this online research. Mm -hmm. And I mean, anyone who has done online dating or who has been <laughs> trolled <Yeah>. online <laughs> knows that people will say things online that they would never say to your face, right? Yeah. So you get lots of negative stuff, lots of hateful and nasty comments. Mm -hmm. So it can be quite emotionally draining to do mm -hmm. this kind of work. Yeah. And I'm saying this as someone who's an outsider of the community that I'm studying. Yeah. Um, so I can only imagine the emotional toll that it can take on insiders. Um, so I've been doing research that looks at Facebook comments, like I said, and especially when it comes to the niqab, there's a lot of negative stuff out mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. and it can be quite soul crushing to read this for hours. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that the ethical dilemmas are much less pronounced, but they still exist, right? Yeah. I'm collecting comments that are publicly available. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking anyone's permission, you know, yeah. can I write about these comments yeah, yeah, because yeah. they are available. Yeah. Um, and with the intention or not, people have posted these where yeah. anyone can see it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So questions do arise about, well, what is my ethical obligation? Do I include your real name here? Because your real name is available on yeah. Facebook yeah. and you really did post this. So I, I would say that it's a sticky situation, but at the same time, I feel like there is accountability to be had. Yeah. And if you have posted this, knowing that it is available, yeah. that anyone can see it, and you have posted something that's quite nasty and hurtful. Yeah. Um, I think that there is accountability to be had. And so I don't, personally, I'm at the point where I will post the real name when I'm mm -hmm. writing about okay. it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So because it's like, at first it's for you, as you're mentioning that, as you debated these dilemmas for you, it is that first it's publicly available and the stuff that they have posted is that they need to be held accountable because some of this is really mean and nasty. Uh, and it impacts our society. And, you know, for you as a researcher, then that becomes important to hold, right. to have that. And yeah, I don't think that's a right or wrong answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, of I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I think people will heavily disagree with me, you know, yeah. um, and I was listening to a couple of sessions back, your talk with Brandon, and he was saying, yeah. you know, sometimes people post comments that they don't intend to yeah. be viewed publicly, which yeah. is true. Yeah. Um, so People may not agree with that position. That's yeah. the position that I currently have that yeah. may develop into something else. But yeah, that's how I feel at the moment. No, I think, and I think you bring up a really good point, right? Because um, it, it's it's two things. We are researchers and we are also human beings, right? Like, mm -hmm. and and you, 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 your job as a researcher, but you might also consider yourself, yourself maybe a public educator or your job is to critically analyze what's happening in society and you're taking a more critical lens. So I think it's a, it really is a good point in that wherever you're placed, as long as you're saying like, this is how I approach my research and these are the reasons um, mm -hmm. for it. So in that case, uh, Jessica, have, has it happened? Because if you are end up using somebody's name, do you, have you faced any backlash or does it impact you personally or just reading these nasty comments, your own mental health, or, you know, you have to deal with this, even though you said you are an outsider, but it must take a, a certain toll, um, I, I'm assuming. I mean, you know, you can only do so much of this per day, yeah. this kind of work per day. You do have to, you know, take uh, time away from it. And it's also really hard to present it mm -hmm. because, you know, it, are you giving a voice to people that shouldn't be heard? Mm -hmm. um, I agree. So, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Yeah. So that's that's another dilemma yeah. to, that, that you face. You know, you try and put... Um, like content sensitivity warnings mm -hmm. prior to presenting. Um, and again, I don't have a good answer to that either, right? <laughs> That's sort of uh, what I do. But um, yeah, I think being empathetic to those around you. Yeah. Um, being honest with that you don't have all the answers either. Yeah. And I, I, I also feel the same way because sometimes I feel that when you're studying and you're trying to explain like this is happening in society, some people would or can criticize that you are giving a voice to them, right? If you, for example, mm -hmm. to, uh, put somebody's interview excerpt and say, this is what they said, for example, about immigration, um, you know, or, or uh, people in the LGBTQ community or some, you know, some nasty comments. And mm -hmm. it is a difficult thing to navigate where you are not doing it in order to promote them. You're doing it just to kind of describe and analyze like this is a subsection of our society who's talking like that. But you're right. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to, to navigate where um, I, I don't know if you, um, uh, if you also face that, um, that you don't want to come across as an apologist for anyone, right? You're, you're just saying, right. like, I am just explaining it. Do you, do you ever, ever feel that? Like, I hope people don't think of me as, you know, an apologist of these views. Um. 
I don't know. I haven't encountered that partly because the analysis is really critical and mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. when I'm presenting it. So maybe not, but I do like, um, I do like to put like an end slide to show positive things that happen online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to show like, it's not only doom and gloom. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe that was a strategy. Yeah. That I chose to do in one presentation. Okay. Excellent. Um, so if we compare your two different research projects, like so you in the first one, you research issues that impacted a minority community, and now you're studying views of the dominant majority. So I want to know a little bit more, like, how does your own positionality um, impact your access to information in different contexts and how you carry yourself, what kind of questions you ask, what kind of things you're looking for, any, any things about your positionality in different contexts? And how does that impact your research? So I would say that part of my feminist epistemology is that, you know, I believe that positionality deeply impacts the type of research questions that we ask, the type mm -hmm. of relationships that we form with participants and the yeah. type of data that we collect. Um, having said that, I think that we can also use strategies as researchers to have people open up who mm -hmm. do not share the same positionality as us. Yeah. So, um, in the first project that I did when I collected data as an undergrad, I remember speaking to um, women about patriarchy within the Muslim community, yeah. right? And this was a very sticky conversation to have with someone who doesn't belong to the community, right? So mm -hmm. there's a real fear that if you open up to an outsider, particularly someone who's white, mm -hmm. then you can e be easily racialized by that person, yeah. right? Yeah, definitely. So I did try to make some sort of connection by, you know, explaining the experience that I've had in my own family, and I'd give examples because there were many, um, and with <laughs> within the Italian community and, and even within the Catholic Church, right? So I tried to show in that sense that I was an ally, that was a strategy that it that I used. And, mm -hmm. and it was a it was an honest truth, right? I wasn't making these things up. Um, and I also found that in that project as well, participants would often open up to me. So often participants that wore the hijab explained to me that because they're so visible, they feel that it is their job to represent right. Islam in a positive light yeah. and to teach non-Muslims about the religion, mm -hmm. um, to negate all the misconceptions about Islam. So a lot of participants in that case welcomed me with open arms and, mm -hmm. and were um, shared you know, with me what the hijab meant and what um, their understanding of Islam and so forth. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, as I mentioned, I did have a lot of reflection about doing this type of work. Yeah. Um, and so I've switched the focus to study majority and dominant mm. groups. Yeah. And I haven't started those interviews yet, but I, I'm assuming that, yes, you know, my positionality will impact the access to information. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> I may not like what many people have to say. Yeah. Right. So I have to maintain a certain level of neutrality and compassion regardless, right? Mm -hmm. Showing that I just want to learn what they have to say from the perspective. Mm -hmm. And I, I do anticipate a different sort of ethical reckoning that as I encounter people that I don't agree with, mm -hmm. I'm still going to have to write about what I truly think about these, about these interviews, right? Right. Um, and so people who I've tried to forge relationships, will they feel a sense of betrayal that I've... Yeah tried to listen to their perspective, but then wrote about them in a negative way, maybe. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in a negative way that I'm showing um, a bias against them, but in a critical, um, 
analytical form, right? Mm -hmm. And so will they feel a sense of betrayal? So those are going to be new questions that I'll have to deal with when the time comes. Yeah. And this brings me to the point that you mentioned, you know, a little bit before to like having sympathy or empathy, because we are, we are researchers, but we are also human beings and somebody is sitting in front of us and, you know, and they're telling their story. Um, so has it ha happened anytime that even if you disagreed with someone, you kind of saw where they were coming from? So even if you were not sympathetic to their views, there might be some empathy that maybe they are misinformed, maybe they have a lot of stuff going on in their life and they're taking it out in a wrong way. Did, do you think that any, any those kind of situations have happened? Um, I haven't encountered that situation yet. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that I will in this, mm -hmm. in this forthcoming project. Yeah. Um, but I think a key fundamental like core value of sociology is that you try to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the core of the work, right? The core isn't to, um, the core isn't to say, hey, all these people are racist, this is why, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's to understand and explain um, and analyze. And so I think that that'll bring some sort of humanity as well into the work. Um, and I mean, I would say that overall, I would judge myself as an empathetic person. Mm -hmm, I always yeah. tell the people around me, like I'm the worst person to bring to a funeral because even if I don't know the person and they're like lived a happy life and are 120 years old, yeah, I will just cry if I see someone yeah. else cry. Yeah. Um, so we, we are humans as well, right? And we do have all those emotions and they do um, come up during the research process. So yeah. that's why I find these methodological methodological appendices yeah in the back of books they're so I fascinating <laughs> so students read those back methodological appendices because they're really good yeah which was going to be my next question right so what is uh some advice you would like to give early career graduate students right who haven't started their research maybe working on their proposals working on ethics approval but are interested in some similar um kind of question maybe it's studying a vulnerable or marginalized community or studying the dominant majority but you know people whose views you fundamentally disagree with um i would say start early that mm -hmm. would be my biggest thing you know, if I didn't do that project as an undergrad, would I have gone to do that sort of research in the PhD and learned all those lessons much later on and have to, you know, divert my research and so forth. So just to say that just because you don't have experience or training or enough of, or if you don't think you have enough of, it's okay to start and mm -hmm. to have yourself a solid uh, interview questions and a solid um, IRB application that has been approved, mm -hmm. you can start early without that experience and you're going to get gain it as you go. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be my advice not to be scared to think that you don't have what it takes to do that sort of research. Yeah, and that's an excellent advice because um, I'll tell students that the this fear of not being good enough or like you don't have enough experience doesn't subside right as even as you become a right. PhD, it's not for me like <laughs> right. close to the end of PhD, you still have that imposter syndrome right and it's like right. oh this is not good enough and i don't know what i'm doing so so that's very good advice that you're saying like just start you're never gonna be like perfect that now i know what i'm doing and then you're gonna start right right and you're gonna your ideas will grow and evolve and so will you as a as a scholar and as a person and and that'll only happen what you have to start somewhere right so yeah um that's why i say start early great 
So Jessica, what are your future plans? Like after you graduate, you finish your dissertation, uh, what, what are you planning to do after? What are your goals? Yeah, I hear that the postdoc now is the new requirement. So <laughs> that'll probably be the next step. Um, I, <laughs> I really hope to um, be in academia and mm -hmm. to do to, to be a professor. I mean, that that is the ultimate goal. I'm going to knock on wood because um, we hear about, you know, as graduate students that these jobs are competitive yeah, and so forth. And, and yeah. um, so that is the goal. But, you know, fingers crossed. And um, yeah, that's that's a <laughs> yes. Excellent. And good luck with that, Jessica. I'm sure you'll do great because the when I compare your two projects, you're studying something that is very topical. It is very useful. And I don't think a lot of people are doing it, at least not in a poli sci perspective that I know of, um, even though you're in a different department. But I would I'm so looking forward to reading your work. Uh, so where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? They want to keep tabs on you to see when is the dissertation coming out <laughs> or any published papers? Where can they find you? So I'm on Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. I'm on Twitter and I've got a website. It's under construction. That website was constructed a bit a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. but I still mm -hmm. got it up and running. Okay. Um, so yeah, you can contact me on Twitter or even uh, via email. You can find me on the sociology uh, department website at University of Toronto. Great. I will make sure that I put all of that information in the show notes as well so our students can find you. Thank you, Jessica. Such a fascinating discussion. Any parting last words you want to you wanna, uh, talk about before we, before we end here? Um, nothing that'll be too uh, <laughs> thoughtful at this point. I mean, I'll, I'll just say thank you so much for having me, first Not of all. Not a problem, yeah. This was such a great conversation. Um, and, you know, I think that it's interesting to be in this position where you can study two sides of the coin of the same sort of issue, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the overall umbrella, the like overarching question that I'm looking at is anti-Muslim racism, right? Yeah, yeah. And I've looked at it from the people who experience discrimination, and now I'm looking at it from those who perpetuate it, right? Yeah. Um, and so fingers crossed that that's what this work accomplishes. Excellent. Fingers crossed from my side too. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to reading it. Uh, thank you so much to our guest, Jessica Stallone, for taking her time out of her very busy schedule, talking about her fascinating project. And thank you so much to all our listeners. Uh, keep uh, listening to our episodes and I will see you with our next guest in a month's time. Thank you everyone and take care. Bye. <laughs>